Hi, everyone. I'm Susan Harrow, media coach, marketing strategist, and author of the best-selling book, Sell Yourself Without Selling Your Soul. I'm also CEO of PRSecrets.com, and I want to welcome you to the Be a Media Darling podcast. Join us on BeAMediaDarling.com and PRSecrets.com, where you'll get free goodies and also the resources that we mention in each episode, as well as other delightful things that will help you shine in the media spotlight. On Work Your Story Wednesday, I'll walk you through specific nitty-gritty storytelling steps that you need to take in order to get noticed by the media, get invited to appear in the media, and my secrets to getting invited back. We'll also chat about the three P's, how to prepare, package, and position yourself before you even email or pick up the phone to pitch the media. Tune in every Wednesday for tips about how to pitch producers and editors so they email or call you back ASAP. Welcome everyone to the Be A Media Darling podcast. Today our topic is five ways your branding can get the media to call you. And our wonderful guest is a dear friend of mine, Karen Leland. She's CEO of Sterling Marketing Group, which is a branding and marketing strategy and implementation firm helping CEOs, businesses, and teams develop stronger personal and business brands. Clients include AT&T, American Express, Marriott Hotels, Apple Computer, LinkedIn, and Twitter. She's the best-selling author of nine books. That is a lot, Karen. <laughs> I know you're super prolific. And she writes regularly for Entrepreneur.com and Forbes.com. Her most recent book, which is just coming out, so this is so exciting. We're going to do an interview at NASDAQ on Thursday, June 23rd. So if you can come, if you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, we'd love to have you. It's called The Brand Mapping Strategy, Design, Build, and Accelerate Your Brand. She's spoken for Harvard, Stanford, YPO, the AMA, and been interviewed on the Today Show, CNN, CNBC, and Oprah. To reach her, go to sterlingmarketinggroup.com. And the other thing, you're doing a TED Talk, too. Did you already do your TED Talk? I haven't. I'm doing it. Actually, I'm doing a TEDx Talk at Yale in October, actually. That's fantastic. And obviously, the topic's branding. The topic is actually of the whole, that whole Yale TEDx talk, the theme is the gap. And I'm going to talk about the gap between how people experience themselves and how their brand is sometimes represented in the world. Oh, that would be a great place to start. Like there's a lot of definitions of a brand, you know, that you are the brand, that branding. So maybe we could start with what your definition of a brand is and why people should have one. You know, it's funny because in the book, one of the things that I say is I tell people I'm going to play fast and loose with language because I use the word branding and the word marketing and the word PR and the word social media and the word business development. Not that they're all the same thing, but they're so inextricably linked in today's world that they're really like different facets of a diamond. And so branding in general, I like the definition Jeff Bezos gives about a brand is what someone says about you when you're not in the room. But I really think a brand, whether it's personal or business, is it's your reputation. It's how you are seen. It's how you are viewed. It's what people think of when they think of you. And the reason that I say that PR and social media and all of that is intertwined is that today... You, there are no just pure branding activities or pure marketing activities or pure PR activities. They all have a linkage and a relationship with each other. So, I mean, we're really talking about perception as reality and how all of those things don't need to be consistent. Your social media can't look, you know, cutesy and wild if your website looks serious and buttoned up. Exactly. And, and the thing is, is that your, your, the brand of your website and your collateral materials really need to match 
what the tone of your brand is, either your personal brand or your business brand, depending on which one you're designing collateral materials for. And so many people have websites and collateral material that is just counter to their brand. So for example, I have people call me sometimes and they'll go, They'll go, well, you know, I use chartreuse in my website design because my web designer said chartreuse is a really hot color this year. Or somebody said to me the other day, well, I used pink because I like the color pink. But that doesn't mean that pink is the right color for her brand. As a matter of fact, for this person, pink was completely the wrong color. So people tend to think about designing their brand identity based on how they feel or what's popular rather than based on what's consistent tonally with and energetically even with the particular brand that they have, either personally or business. So what should they start with? Like, let's imagine somebody loves that color pink, but it's not matching what they do for a living or what they want to promote or their what they want to communicate, what they're feeling they're trying to communicate. Yeah, because and again, we're we're talking about color. Color is only one aspect. There's fonts, there's design, there's language, there's all these other aspects of how you represent your brand. Color is an interesting one because there's a whole psychology to color. And so colors will communicate to someone a very very different things depending on the color. But I think the place for people to start, and it's the reason, Susan, I really wrote the brand mapping strategy book. The reason that I wrote it is that I think people need to start with defining their brands in some very specific ways. So let me give you an example that I use or an analogy that I use. I wear glasses. I know a lot of people wear glasses. And when you go to the eye doctor, you sit there and you're reading the eye chart and the eye doctor will put this big, heavy, gigantic thing on your face. And he or she will click a bunch of different lenses and then they'll ask you, does this lens make it clearer or fuzzier? Can you see the letters clearer or fuzzier? And the brand is kind of like that. There are seven different aspects to your brand that have to be clear, not fuzzy, And for you to understand and be able to articulate those seven aspects of your brand before you should be doing any brand design and before you should even be doing any brand building and putting it out there. Because what happens is people start putting it out there and building buzz for their brand, but they drive people back to a website or to social media or to an online blog that is not representative fully of the brand and then they lose people. There's no conversion. Right. So what are what are those seven things? Well, the seven things, and, and of course, they are in the book. <laughs> of course. Of course. course. It's, it's, um, I'm sure it's fully explained. Absolutely. Yeah. But And I'll give them to you very, very briefly. But, you know, essentially, the, the seven things are, the first one is what I call the, the anchor statement. And that's the go-to statement about who you are. So the anchor statement is the, a lot of people call it the elevator pitch. You know, it's the very quick who you are go-to description. So it's not a tagline. It's, it's more like... No, it's literally yeah. like when you're at a cocktail party and someone says, what do you do? It's the one or two sentence answer you give. Now, so the, I might say, I double or triple entrepreneurs' business using soundbites properly in their media appearances. Yeah, that, that exactly. Okay. Right. And, and by the way, the thing that the anchor statement has to do is it has to be, you know, people's brains look for patterns. It has to be a pattern they can recognize. So we've all said to people at a cocktail party or a conference, what do you do? And they talk and we're like in our minds thinking, I got no idea what this person does. We are totally lost. So as obvious as that sounds, a lot of people can't actually answer that question in an effective, timely, impactful way. It, yeah. it sounds easy, but it's not necessarily, you know, and it has to be something people, as I said, can fit into a pattern. So for me, I say just what you said at the beginning of this, I'm a branding and marketing strategist and implementer. I work with executives, CEOs, on business people, on improving their business and personal brands. Everyone can get that. You know, it's understandable. 
So that's the anchor statement. The other thing is the unique branding proposition. You know, we always talk about in business unique selling propositions, but it's the same idea applied to the brand. You know, what is it about what you do or how you do it that makes you unique, distinct, special? What sets you apart? And I don't mean by that what makes you better than other people, but what is it that really is distinct about you? And again, a lot of people I find have not thought this through. The third one is brand tone and temperament. So what's the consistent mood, tenor, quality, character, you know, manner that you bring to all your interactions? Because there is a tone and a temperament that each person and, in fact, each business brings to their interactions. Then there's the what I call the brand energy, which is what is it that you can be counted on to contribute in all circumstances and in all times? And I've actually divided the brand energy up into a series of archetypes, which I go into detail about in the book. So there's people that are advocates and people that are makers and people that are connectors and people that are motivators and people that are fixers and people that are visionaries. You know, as a matter of fact, you are in the book. I think I had you down as a synthesizer. Yes, that was the brand energy that I gave as an, you as an example for. I'm going to read what it says. You haven't heard this. It's short. I don't remember. It's short. People with this, I think I might have just done it without asking your permission. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember this at all. But it's nice. But I said something nice about you. Here's what the synthesizer brand energy is. It's people with this energy have the ability to bring together various elements, ideas, products, thoughts, etc., and combine them in a way that creates something new and improved. The type of statements they might make about themselves include, I enjoy projects where I take multiple parts and put them together to make a new whole. I'm often asked to figure out how to make several separate things work together. And people tell me I'm good at blending and combining things together to make something better. And then I said, for example, Susan Harrow is a media coach with a talent for taking information, blah, blah, blah. And then there's a little paragraph explaining how I think you are that. And then other words that describe that energy are integrator, blender, and producer. That's just one of about 12 different archetypes of brand energy. And it's it's important to know, and people are usually one or a combination of one or two. It's very important to know which type you are because that tends to also determine the kind of language you use in your branding materials and how you talk about what you do. That kind of informs the even sometimes the kind of logo that you create. Then number five is the signature story. You know, why do you do what you do? What's the essential story that brought you to this place? How did you get here? What is it about your past and your history and something, you know, that's the same as the story of origin. Exactly. Same as your story of origin. And then the sixth is what I call the signature services, which are what are the core competencies and offers that you have that are particular to you? It may be a process you've created. It may be something proprietary that you have. It may be a system that you use. It may just be a particular spin or take you have on something. And then the seventh one is what are your brand enhancers and your reducers? So really, what are your current strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats as a brand, and really understanding those and addressing those. Those are the seven general areas. And you know, those sound so obvious. It takes me an entire day, an entire day working with an individual or a team to have them identify all seven of those things. I don't think it's obvious to most people. Yes, it might sound obvious, but I know that people have so much trouble even with the elevator speech and their stories of origin and their bio and all of that. So it doesn't surprise me that there's a lot of trouble. So just list the seven again, just so people can remember that these are all necessary to have a personal or a business brand that is going to be effective before you go out and start doing buzz for your brand, which we're going to talk about in a minute, but I really wanted to have people have a sense of what is involved in creating a brand so they can start to see what parts 
of their brand are missing from these seven, or if you've got all seven, bravo for you, you know, rah, rah. But if you don't have all seven, to start getting those aligned before you reach out to the media so you can have results you want. And of course, this is going to help you get the kinds of clients that you want too. So there's no kind of chink in your brand or nothing jarring that people go, hey, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't jive with all the rest of the, the stuff that I've seen or read on your website or in your social media or meeting you in person because all of that has to be consistent too, Like, right? Like if somebody's like an organizer and they show up and their hair's a mess and their clothes are askew and nothing matches, even though they may be a, an organizer for a home, you're going to go, I'd never hire that Right, because it's an inconsistent brand message. Exactly. It's funny, I was talking to someone the other day who's a productivity expert and I went to her website and it's chaotic and everything's everywhere and you and you can't figure out the path. And it literally looks like somebody just threw stuff on her website and tossed it all up in the air. And, and I said to her, I said, you know, the problem is, is the message you're giving with your website is totally the opposite message of what you say you do. And so at the very least, you're giving people emotionally a confusion. So, all right, the seven are an anchor statement, a unique branding proposition, a brand tone and temperament, a brand energy, a signature story, signature services, and brand enhancers and reducers. Okay, great. So let's talk now about why personal branding is important for everyone who wants to get media. We've, we've touched on that a little bit, but I'd love to hear more of your thoughts. Like, well, why, you know, why is this meaningful for the media? I mean, as you know, and I know, because we do this all day long, the space is super crowded today. I mean, the one thing the internet's done is it's the great equalizer. So in the past, you had to be really well-known or really famous or really big to get media attention or really, really extraordinarily unique to get media attention. Today, anybody can compete for that media attention by being online. I mean, that's just the reality of it. So there's a huge amount of noise, a huge amount of competition, a huge amount of input coming at media all the time. And as a result, they're more gun-shy, number one. Number two, they're much more careful to screen for certain attributes before they'll even be willing to talk to someone. You know, they're not as willing to give people a chance as I think they were 20 years ago because there's so many people out there who are not qualified but think they are. And so the media gets an influx of that kind of, you know, content from people. And so I think you have to be able to distinguish yourself out and to build a personal brand. Otherwise, it's very, very hard for the media either one to find you or two, when you find them or reach out to them, for them to be interested in you. Yeah, and according to Wasabi Publicity, by the way, with a new survey that they did, the number one way that journalists are finding sources is Google. You mean they're so, Googling the na- They're Googling the terms you know, and finding the person. They're Googling terms and finding the experts for those terms. So if you're not showing up, right. or you show up and they land on your website and you don't, and you might have a good search engine ranking, but your personal branding is not 100% in sync, then they're going to go down to the next person. Yeah, and, and just to give you an example of that, I was being interviewed by a reporter for a newspaper, not a newspaper, a, a magazine the other day. And I asked her how she found me and she said, I Googled the topic personal brand consultant and you came up and I went to your website and I looked at what you had and I was very impressed and blah, blah, blah. And we somehow got into a conversation, this conversation about looking for sources. And I asked her, I said, when you go to someone's website, how big of a deal is it? And she said, you know, she said, I have found people who are amazing sources and would have been fantastic for my article. And this was a major magazine. This was a top magazine. She said, who would be amazing for my story, but their websites are so poorly written 
designed or represented, or all three, sometimes one, sometimes all three, she said that I can't use them because if I use them, what will happen is a reader reads my story, looks at the source. If they go to that source's website, looking the way it does or being written the way it's written or being as poorly done as it is, she says it reflects badly on me. Isn't that fascinating? That is fascinating because especially since it's a reputable, it's a, you know, a national or a reputable source. Yeah, it was a national but, paper, a national yeah, magazine. Yeah. But I would think that pretty much all journalists are starting to think this way too, that it's part of their brand and their the credibility of their story and their sources. So you're right, if a source looks shoddy, it's going to reflect back on them. So I think that makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. I just don't think people think about it like that. I don't think people realize it and they don't think about it like that. No, and let's talk about how that's in social media because essentially what the media does once you do come up in Google like you did quickly is that they have to vet you. So she goes to your website and then typically they go to your social media too. What are some typical branding mistakes that happen on social media that would turn a reporter off? Well, it's so funny because I had some people over for dinner last night and we were, one of them's a PR person and the other one is a branding expert. So we're all in a similar profession and we were talking, we we're talking about a client that we've all worked with. And this person has a book out and they're trying to promote their book. And, but you know, I, I said, what's their social media look like? And we went on their Twitter and their Twitter had 300 followers and they were following 250 of them back. And I was like, wow, that is not good. And this person was trying to get on like CBS and all these major shows, right? And the PR person was trying to explain to the client, you know, the producer of CBS is going to look at your Twitter. And if you've got 300 people who are following you and you're following 250 back, that's like basically saying you have no influence in your, in your sphere, in your area, in your field. So I think one of the big mistakes people make, for example, like on Twitter is, yeah, they follow all these people, then they follow them back or they, you know, and so they don't really have a Twitter following. So your ratio of followers to following on Twitter should be like, you should be 10% or less of who's following you number-wise of who you're following. That's one big mistake people make on Twitter. Oh, I hadn't even considered that. Like that number even, I haven't even thought about, like I, I don't even know how many people I'm following. I'm going to look at my Twitter. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, so especially since, you know, when you go to other things like cloud, they say we can follow people for you. I'm thinking, I don't want those. No, that's a bad media. idea. You actually don't want anybody automatically following people for you. No, I don't. But that's one of the criteria in order to connect sometimes. Is right. That they go, can follow people for you. I'm thinking, I don't want that. Okay, so that's one part of it, the ratio of followers to people are following you. What about the content of the feed? Well, you know, as you know, content is, is still king and it's everything. It's back to that thing about there's so much noise today. So what happens is... If you don't have quality content, so if you're just doing keyword stuffing or you're just throwing stuff up there, if you don't have quality content, you one, you're going to be penalized by Google. And then two, when the reporter or the producer or the potential client gets there, you're not going to convert and close that person because the quality of your content isn't being seen by them as valuable, useful, helpful, etc. So quality content 
if this is even possible, is more important now than it, even than it was just a couple of years ago. It's probably the number one issue that most people have in their branding is that their content is not of high enough quality. Now, that can be visual quality if you're doing something visual. That can be written quality if you're writing. That can be quality of the interviews if you're doing podcasts, if you're doing videos. I don't mean the quality of the video like how pretty it looks because the standard no, for video is more like what's ha- what you're talking value. about. Exactly. Yeah. The value you're delivering. So what you're saying is, number one, a ratio of followers to follow ease. And then number two, the content of your feed in terms of if it's valuable and high quality and relates to what your business is, I would think. Because sometimes I see people that seems fairly unrelated to whatever they're doing. Are there any like no-nos not to put on your social media that would turn a reporter off that would say like, let's imagine you've got like lots of quality content, but you've got you know, one of your personal interests, maybe something, I don't know, a little sketch or on the edge or whatever. Well, the thing is, is that with something like Twitter, there is an expectation that there will be some personal. With Facebook, again, there's on the, the edge of personal. LinkedIn, there's really not an expectation for personal. LinkedIn's pretty much the straight business to business player. The problem comes in when people post things that they aren't thinking through how they're going to make them look. So for example, complaining about a former employer, that's not a good idea. And people do it. Talking, I mean, some of the things I've seen are things like people talking about how they were driving drunk, the cop pulled them over, but they got away with it. I mean, that's just just a stupid thing to put on Twitter or Facebook. So it's anything of that nature. You know, somebody used to say to me, never put anything on social media. You wouldn't be comfortable if it were printed on the front page of the New York Times. That's always my rule of thumb. That's very very good advice. What about anything that's going to attract the media when they see your social feeds? Well, I mean, I think one thing that attracts them is numbers. So if you do have good social numbers, you know, if you have a certain number of followers, that's absolutely something that makes a difference. That's what would be the one. minimum of good? Like what would, what would be considered good? You know, I mean, I think if you're on Twitter and you have 3,000 to 5,000 followers, you're in the top percent of people on Twitter. Now, having 40,000 is better. But, you know, if you at least have three or 4,000, it's obvious that you are a player, at least to some degree in your game. Right. You know, if you're on Facebook and you have more than 500 followers, I mean, you have more than 500 connections. You're obviously someone who's using, excuse me, LinkedIn. I meant I said Facebook, but I meant LinkedIn. LinkedIn. I'm not sure for Facebook. You know, you would probably be able to answer that better than I would. You know, as you know, Facebook is not where my audience lives. My audience lives on LinkedIn and LinkedIn first and foremost and Twitter second. I don't really use Facebook for business because it isn't where my audience is. So I'm not super familiar with that because Facebook is more the business to consumer place. So if you're selling to consumers, Facebook is a great place to be. But if you're selling to businesses, LinkedIn and Twitter are more appropriate for that market. Well, and that's such a great point because doing social media when people feel like they need to do all the social media, it's like do the social media where your people are, you know? And one of my clients and one of the Sell Yourself Without Selling Your Soul membership club participants, we did a podcast interview where, so I will recommend that all of you go and listen to that at BeAMediaDarling.com, where she talked about she had no list and she got 15,000 Twitter followers in two months and converted that to $40,000 worth of business. Yeah. So that's definitely a podcast to listen to that will pop up at this one just so you can hear it, so you can use 
use that strategy to get ready so you will be media ready when they look at your Twitter feed because she had a really super great uh, strategy for that. So we're, we're talking to Karen Leland and her new book is called The Brand Mapping Strategy and you can find her information at sterlingmarketinggroup.com. And so there's two G's in that marketing group. And we will put this up on beamediadarling.com course with Karen's link and a link to her wonderful book that where you can read about me and a lot of other people <laughs> <laughs> because we're friends we did a little interview over I think you barbecued me up a fabulous steak and strawberries and green beans something super healthy it was really <laughs> delicious yeah so let's go back to what else might get media to call you that you could have ready and be ahead of your competitors or other people in your crowded field because you were talking about how crowded the internet is right now. So how can we stand out with our brand and get the media to call us when they're maybe doing that search on Google or when you've responded to Harrow or you've responded to a query and they're checking you out to make sure that they choose you? Well, yeah. As, let's talk about Harrow for a minute, which is help a reporter out. As you know, I have a whole series of online programs and one of them is literally about how you use Harrow and other online sites to reach out to reporters and have them cover you. Because again, as simple as this stuff may seem, so many people are doing it so badly and inappropriately and they're missing the opportunities. So yeah. the, we'll put that link up on this on beamediadarling.com here for this too, for you all. You know, that's the, a great resource. The yeah. thing about Harrow is that you got to remember, if, if I'm a reporter, especially from any kind of known paper or known entity or known media outlet, you know, so if I'm from Inc. Magazine and I put something out on Harrow saying I'm looking for experts in time management to address how people can set goals for the new year, how many thousands of responses do you think I'm going to get within a five-minute period? A couple thousand. Yeah, probably a couple thousand. So one of the first things is I always encourage people to put in the headline what the actual they're responding to. Because remember, that reporter, that media person's also getting emails for other things. So I always put in the headline, like it would be expert for time management, you know, so that the person knows what it is that they're responding to. That's one thing. And it's also, if you can sneak something in the headline very shortly about yourself that works, I think that's great. So, I mean, I think the thing is, is just the subject line is one of the first things that you have to do properly just in responding. And so many people just don't do that even well. But then the other thing is, is, you know, I always tell people when I'm the media person and I put stuff out on Harrow to interview people, if I get from somebody a block of text with no paragraphs, I am embarrassed to say this, but it's really true. Nine out of 10 times, I won't read it. I'll just delete it because I can't read a huge block of text. So if it's not separated into sentences or paragraphs that are easy for me to skim, it's too much work. And I'll just delete it. And most reporters I know have told me that's the case. But they will do the same. So, you know, you have to make, first thing is you have to make it easy for these people to read what you've sent them. That's number one. Can that, I just say super quickly, that should be the same on your website. Absolutely. Nobody read that huge block. So, so no. just create little headlines for each of your paragraphs yep. so somebody could skim it and see if they need yeah. if they want to further. Yeah. Skimming. So the same and and along those lines, one of the ways to skim is you want to put bullet points in that. You know, you want to basically, you introduce yourself, you say why you're writing, why, and then why you think you're the good person. Bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. You know, if they've asked for something like tips, tip, 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 or whatever information they've asked for, your contact information, and you're done. You know, I'll tell you, a lot of times I get those from PR people when I'm the reporter asking for information, and the PR person will not give me the contact information for their client. And then I'm like, I don't want to have to call the PR person, get the client. That's, that's ridiculous. 
And I know they want to control it a lot of times, but you really have to say the name of the client and their contact information. Reporters just don't have time. They, they need to be able to quickly get access to what they need access to. And if, they, if you give them one extra step, then they're going to go to somebody who's given them the exactly. ease of, of getting in contact with that person. Exactly. Yeah, it's, about, it's not just about your great content. It's about the ease in which you deliver it to someone in the form that they've requested. As soon as you are a pain in someone's behind, you have just reduced your chances of them covering you by about 90%. Yeah, that's a great point. What else do you um, look for? Because you're on both sides of it. Since you write for Forbes.com and Entrepreneur. Entrepreneur.com. Yep. Yeah, since you write for both of them, you are also soliciting sources all the time. So you're really on both sides of the fence that way. Yeah, I think the other thing they look for is people who really are experts at what they are looking for, not someone who's stretching the point and not someone who's trying to pivot their story. You know, they know what they need and what they're looking for. And nothing annoys them more than somebody who responds who isn't really an expert. Or is trying to get them to pivot. Like, well, I'm, I'm, I have seen people, people have written to me, well, I don't know about that, but you might be interested in this story. Well, no, because I asked for that. I asked for A, not for B. And, right. and then I will never use that person again because they're kind of on my bad list for having wasted my time. Yeah, I totally get it. I totally get it. Are there any other no-nos? Being long as opposed to short in terms of what you write the person and being arrogant. You know, I remember once, I actually have this as a slide that I show in my speeches when I give speeches on branding and marketing. I show this slide. Somebody once, I was once looking for a source on heroin. Somebody wrote me back and they said, basically, I'm paraphrasing now, but you better get in touch with me quickly because my new book just came out and it's really a hot topic. So I'm not going to be available for long. It took me less than a quarter of a second to delete that email. <laughs> I mean, reporters hate that. They hate that. They hate entitlement and arrogance. I mean, you have to earn. If you, I don't ever think it's a good idea, but if you, if you are Steve Jobs, you probably get a pass on entitlement and arrogance with the press. But unless you're that level, you should cut the attitude. Yeah, and also, you know, never pressure reporters like that. Like, no. you better hurry up and get, get no. in touch with your thing right. or not. They, no, they, they don't, don't care. There's a that. million sources they can use. Yeah. So what's something that people should do? How can their um, – I guess we're talking about some of the biggest branding mistakes also that small businesses and entrepreneurs make that impact their relationship with the media. Are there other things that they do that are, like, total no-no's? Well, I mean, I think you know this from the work that you do. I mean, I think when people are not really clear – about the points they want to make with the media, then if they're doing anything on radio or on camera, it really ends up being a problem. So, for example, I never practice a speech. Like, I never rehearse or learn a script when I'm going to be on radio or TV. But you can bet I know my five talking points or four talking points or so the points that I want to make and the stories that I want to tell, and they are in my head completely. So then I'm free to just be myself and be natural. So I think the lack of preparation and really understanding what their main points are is one of the big problems people have when they're doing live media, like radio or television. Yeah, so it's about planning, preparing, and practicing your cell bites so you can be free to be spontaneous. Exactly. And you're right, and a lot of people don't have those down, and then they can be spontaneous, but you're, they're not going to remember what their points are, and the interviews are not going to be structured tightly to help you actually get business from your media interviews. And that's the difference for somebody like Karen. I mean, Karen's obviously very experienced doing media interviews, so she's got all of her points down, and so she, she knows exactly what she wants to speak about and to speak about for each particular topic and how she can twist each topic 
and use points for different angles. So that's something else to be prepared for. Have we covered all the biggest mistakes, base branding mistakes? I mean, that's an interesting way to look at it. I wouldn't have considered that branding, but I think it is because totally. it reflects on how you're perceived alive, I guess, you know, live, right? And then does that match your website and your social media? The feel, the tone? Absolutely. I think it absolutely is branding. Yeah. I mean, I think the, I would say the only other mistake I would highlight is that people tend to get this fear of missing out and they think they have to be doing everything. I've got to be on Instagram. I've got to be on Twitter. I've got to be doing videos. I've got to be podcasting. I've got to be going to conferences. I've got to be speaking. I've got to be blogging. And the truth is, is that what you have to do is pick one or two. People always think I'm nutty when I say that, but it's really true. One or two things and do them very, 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 very well and very consistently. And if you do that, one or two of those channels can be enough to build your brand. I mean, basically, you and I have talked about this, but, you know, now I, I have the advantage of being a trained journalist and a writer. So writing is, I mean, something I can do. It's natural to me. But I've basically built my business, my branding and marketing business on writing, on blogging, on writing articles, on writing books. That's mostly the strategy that I've used. So in terms of social media, a blog was the biggest strategy that I used. And then my second strategy was speaking because, you know, the other thing I can do is, as you know, Susan, is talk. (laughs) No problem with that one. (laughs) No, but the great thing is that you've deep dived into both of those. Like you have so much content on your blog and on your website. And then you obviously with the nine books that you've written, and then you're always speaking at conferences all over the world. So you're getting clients that way, but it's also a way that you're, consistently talking about this topic. But I blo- but I also blog for other people. I blog for Forbes. I blog for Entrepreneur. I blog for All Business. I've written articles for a lots and lots of other people. So it was a way to get myself out there. And so the, my point of all that is that, and you know, like, as you know, I just recently started doing the Branding Blowout podcast. So, you know, I started podcasting because that's just more talking. <laughs> Exactly. Which we both love to do. Which we both love to do, which is probably why we're friends. We both love to eat and talk, which is probably why we're friends. Um, And so I think the I think the point of this is that I think one of the biggest branding mistakes people make is they feel this pull in all these different directions and then they do a lot of stuff, none of it very well. That's to me a huge branding mistake, as opposed to doing a deep dive on one or two branding tactics and really being awesome at those and excellent at those. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally in agreement with you. And go where you're pulled. Like Karen said, it's natural for her to speak and it's natural for her to write. And she's really good at both of those things. So go where you're pulled. My friend Andrea, who we just had on, Andrea Share, who we've just had on as well, is a photographer. I know Karen's a photographer too, but Andrea uses Instagram. She's, she posts at least one image a day because it's a visual medium and she's all about joy and photography and beauty. And those things are in sync with her brand. And she's doing photography naturally every single day so she pops those up on facebook and she's also a writer so she's her deep dives are facebook instagram and blogging yes perfect she started her following with blogging she's a beautiful writer she's got a very devoted following and her followers also follow her 
on those other two mediums for the visual content because yeah. she puts more of the visual content. And on you them. know, you can just do visual content. Like I, I always use as an example, my friend DeWitt Jones, who's a former National Geographic photographer. He has a visual blog called Celebrate What's Right with the World. He's an, I mean, he was a former National Geographic photographer. So you can imagine all over the world. So you can imagine how good he is. But you know, he once a week posts a photo that he's taken with a quote. And I think in two years, he's built it up to something like 17,000 followers. It's basically all visual content. And what is it called? You'll, you'll pass us that Sure. Link. It's called Celebrate. Celebrate What's Right with the World. It's free and it's really beautiful and inspirational and wonderful. And it's a great example of using visual content alone to drive a brand. Yeah. Are there other ways to drive um, interest and the media besides like obviously since he's a photographer that is very natural for him and we'll have that on beamediadarling.com a link to his site so you can take a look at his feed and see what he's done you don't have to be a photographer to do this I love to take pictures too I don't even have a good camera I do it on my iPhone but I, I do love that I love taking pictures I haven't loved posting them as much because uh-huh. it takes so long but um, I'm going to hire somebody to do that because I actually love taking pictures so if you don't love part of the process of contracted out, you know, so. And, um, and by the way, I just have to disagree with you. You said, I don't have a good camera. I take it on my iPhone. The iPhone right now, first of all, the best camera is the camera you have with you. So that's the first oh, thing. That's but yeah. the other thing is that the iPhone right now is 10, 12 megapixels. The iPhone is an extraordinary camera right now. I basically use my iPhone more than I use my, my Canon at this point. And I know a lot of photographers, including DeWitt Jones, who he uses other equipment as well, but who consistently use their iPhone. So the iPhone has become, if you like taking photographs, the iPhone has become an extraordinary tool for taking photographs, for placing on Instagram, especially with all the apps that there are now for fooling around with the images after you've done it. I mean, there's an amazing amount of stuff you can do. So I think the iPhone is one of the best tools people do have for actually starting to brand in a visual sense, because it's always with them if you use an iPhone or if you use a Galaxy, you know, one, basically a, a, a camera phone. What kinds of things can they do to use their iPhone to help brand them that would be attractive to the media? Like what kinds of things would they put on their website or on their social media that would, well, that would yeah. For example, you can use Periscope now, which is an app that lets you take really short little videos sure. and post them to Facebook. Anybody that's got a cam- that's got a phone camera can do that. Yeah. So that's one thing. And, you know, there's also Facebook Live where people can do that. So that's one way people can use the camera. They can also use it to take pictures. And then sometimes I take a picture and the picture inspires me to write about something. So I'll say, you know, it's very personal. I'll say I was walking down the street and I saw this and blah, blah, blah. And then I'll make it into some story about branding or some blog about branding. So I just think that the ability to make your own media today with the cameras that are embedded with the cameras, the videos, the recorders that are embedded in phones, and then to instantly be able to publish them is an extraordinary way to start to build your brand in a spontaneous way. I mean, you need a planned way, but that's a more spontaneous way. Yeah, that's great. And, and that's a great point, too, that there is the whatever's in the moment kind of publicity, as long as it's well thought out and curated, as well as the thoughtful plan for your social media, including blogging or podcasting or blogging or whatever that is. Are there certain kinds of images, though, that the media would be more mediagenic for people on their feeds? That, not that I want people to start just doing that, but to be able to put it in the mix, like you do things that are that pull you and that draw you and that interest you or that inspire you to write a blog and that you can put that on their blog post or 
whatever medium you're using. But then are there certain things that the media might look for that they can either use or that attracts them and that says, wow, this is really interesting. This is an interesting person. I love their brand for well, the kind of con- images. Content-wise, I think the answer to that is no, with two exceptions. You know, you have to stay away from anything pornographic, you know, and you have to stay away from anything violent or illegal. So, you know, taking those three things out of the mix, I think other than those three things, anything really goes. And with this criteria, it has to be a interesting or well-taken or artistic photograph. So it's really the quality of the photograph or the interestingness of the photograph or the what the photograph is communicating is what makes the difference rather than it being a particular subject. But, you know, as you know, from taking photographs and as I know from being a photographer and doing a lot of photography, it's every photographer, just like every artist, just like every writer has their own voice. So the more you develop your voice as a photographer, the more that your photographs will have a certain feel and look based on who you are. And that is something that can start to also brand you because your photographs now have a voice, just like your writing has a voice. Yeah, that's a terrific point, by the way, because I think that, you know, I see some people's, you know, some actually very well-known people's like Instagram feed that's just kind of a mess. And I just think, wow, that's so not in sync with what I saw, saw their brand or the, the quality of their brand. So even though you're taking your own photographs, what Karen's saying is that they still have to be of high quality, high visual quality or be interesting and beautiful. Because I've seen some that I was like kind of shocking where I was like, oh, um, I really like the website, but it looks nothing like the Instagram feed and their photographic ability or whatever they're choosing is, is not in sync with what they're representing. So really developing, I like that you can have your own photographic style as well as that's as distinctive as your writing style. Yeah, you can. And I think, and that's something I have to say, I give, I give DeWitt Jones a lot of credit for teaching me that because, you know, I, I came to photography fairly late in life. I was a printer and a painter and, and I had done all that for 20, you know, for a long time, 20 plus years. And DeWitt, you know, asked me if I wanted to learn photography. And I was like, yeah, I was like, no, I suck at photography. <laughs> he was uh-huh. like, he's like, no, really, I'll teach you. And, and, you know, he did. And, and I think he really did teach me how to find my own voice as a photographer. And it's, it's not only given me a lot of joy, but I think, I mean, in my new website that, that I'm doing, I'm actually having a photography section, not because I'm looking for anyone to hire me as a photographer, but because I think it adds to the brand of who I am to say, this is the creative side of me because there is a voice to my photography. Yeah, there is. And I've seen some of your, you know, photographs from India and from elsewhere that are just extraordinary and really fascinating, you know, just extraordinary moments. No, they don't have anything to do with branding in that sense, but it has to do with that you love to travel worldwide. Right. Um, It has to do with the personal part of my brand rather than the business part of my brand. Exactly. Right. Exactly. What are the best ways that business owners can create buzz for their brand and get media attention? Well, you know, first of all, we talked a little bit about keywords and keywords really are important. And again, I find that for all the, the yapping that goes on about keywords and search engine optimization, a lot of businesses do not know their keywords. And it's really pretty simple. One of the first things is you've got to know what your keywords and your keyword phrases are. And then, you know, if let's say you've got 10 phrases that get searched or five, doesn't matter, or 30, I have a silo of 30 words that I know get searched for what I do. And I just can, I start at the top of the list and I do a piece of content with that keyword in it, you know, based on that keyword. And then I go to the second one, then I go to the third one. And then when I'm all the way to the bottom of the list, I start all over again at the top of the list. 
So I you know, just keep cycling them in of your 30 I your just keep cycling those 30 through using those keywords and phrases one at a time. And okay, so if somebody doesn't know how to get their keyword phrases because the Google keyword tool is now gone, yeah. is there another way that they can find what their keywords are? There Looking are their competitors. There obviously. are pieces of software that people can get. I can't think of any of them off the top of my head, but you can Google them. There is software you can get that allow you to do that. SEM Rush is one. SEM Rush is one piece of software that people can use to do that. You know, you can also hire people like me or other people who can help you figure that out. So those are, you know, you can do it yourself by using some software or you can hire somebody. Those are the two basic ways to do it. So it's not something so easy that you could do yourself. It's anymore. not that it's easy to do, do yourself unless you're a branding and a marketing expert and you can really know how to do that research. It's not the easiest thing to do for yourself. Yeah. Okay, great. Is there anything else? that So that's so SEO words and have about 30. That seems like a lot. So. No, I said I have 30. You Anybody might have between five and 30. I have 30 keyword phrases that I use. But remember, I'm not, uh, my keyword phrases include like the whole spectrum of what I do. So thought leadership is one of my keyword phrases. Personal branding is one of my keyword phrases. CEO branding is one of my phrases. I have a variety of things that I write about that all are part of the mix of what I do and what I offer. So depending on what you do, what you offer, it's going to be between five and 30 keywords and keyword phrases. So that's one thing people have, the place people have to start. The other way to build brand and buzz is to really come up with a content marketing strategy. And again, it could be visual, it could be written, it could be podcasts, it could be video, it doesn't matter. What is the content marketing strategy you're going to use to get out into the world what you do in a way that creates value for other people? Most businesses do not have that. So therefore, they're not going to show up in that first page of Google when uh, media is searching for them. They're not going to show up in that first page of Google, but also when their clients go to look for them, there's not really enough. Like if somebody does a search on you or me, a lot of stuff comes up that people can read that we've written, that has been written about us. Somebody, I mean, people used to say to me, tell me about what you do. And half the time now when I say, do you want me to tell you what I do? They go, no, no, I already Googled you and looked it all up. (laughs) They already know. Yeah. Because there's enough stuff that I've written and enough stuff written about me that's out there now over time that it's created that brand. And so that's why people need to have a content marketing strategy because otherwise they can't really get stuff out there. Yeah, that's super important. What do you tell the people who are not the writers in terms of a content marketing strategy? Are we talking about, does podcasting count? Absolutely. Oh, no question about it. Podcasting completely counts. No. It can be any kind of, it can be video. It can be visual. It can be visual and it can be podcasting. So it can be any of the other meetings. It can be content. Because lots of times I think when you say content, people think about words. No, content is content. It could be visual. It can be podcasting. It can be video. It can be written. It could be just like DeWitt is all pictures. So no, it does. It can be anything that is content. Excellent. It can be tweeting. I know one person, his whole entire content marketing strategy is just literally 140 character tweets, high quality, consistently done. He drives all his traffic to his website from his Twitter, and then he converts people on his website for purchasing. See, that's, are you allowed, could you say that who the person is so they can take a look? I can't. <laughs> all right, all right, no worries. But that would be great for people to be able to see what happens. And I just want to just emphasize one of the key things that you said, which is that driving people back to your website. Because a lot of times when people are on Twitter, they don't drive people back to their website. And the whole point is to get people on your list. Yeah, because, well, the whole point is to get engaged with people so that you know who they are. I think it takes, I think the statistics are, it takes something like an average of six 
points of contact before someone buys it's from you? No, up to ten. Up to ten. Okay. Yeah, it's up to ten. It's about seven to ten touches now. Right. So one of the things that 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 we're talking about is what your friend who darn you're not allowed to say his name because now I'm so sorry. Non disclosure. Non disclosure agreements. Yeah, 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 I got it. But I love the idea that it's just one strategy, but he's creating engagement. And I didn't mean to just say drive them back to your website like that. But the point is that he, you're taking somebody to your website to get more than the 140 characters because they're intrigued by your content. Exactly. And that, that gives them the opportunity to get on a list and then to convert them to a sale if they're the right kind of person who's interested in whatever it is that he's promoting. Precisely. Right? Yeah, his brand. It's great. Was well, there anything that we haven't covered that you wanted to touch on? No, I think we've covered a lot. I think I just, I wanted to say, and I, and I know the book is out, but also that I have started this new podcast, The Branding Blowout, and it's going to be up very, very soon. And I'm interviewing an interesting person every week about the topics of branding and marketing and leadership in business. Wonderful. We will put that link, The Branding Blowout, and we'll link to Karen's podcast on beamediadarling.com. And you can also reach her at sterlingmarketinggroup.com. And on there, you'll be able to see her products. And particularly if you're interested in how to approach reporters via Harrow, that's an excellent guide. And I know, is your whole branding course available? Yeah, my whole branding course is is available online. And I, I should say that it's an entire course and it's also available by module. So if people don't want to buy the whole course and they just want to know about the LinkedIn piece, they can just buy the LinkedIn piece or just buy the reporter oh, piece right. or just buy. Yeah. So they can just, they can either buy the whole thing or they can just buy modules. That's terrific. So if you do know what your content marketing strategy is, and it's just one of those, you can purchase just one module. But if you don't have those seven elements yet of the brand, so you can get ready for the media, that would be a great idea to go through the whole entire course. Karen and I have done some private <laughs> branding things at Cavallo Point Spa. By the pool there. in our robes. <laughs> By the pool in our robes next to a, like a roaring fire, really beautiful way. So That's where we do our branding sessions. Well, and I, I want to say that's actually a really important point that we didn't make that today that we should, you know, you're, you know, you're one of the best at what you do in your industry and you're an expert at branding and marketing. Uh -huh. And I'm really good at what I do in, in branding and marketing. But whenever you are trying to do some branding for yourself, you come to me and whenever I'm trying to do some branding for or marketing for myself, I come to you. And the point being that I think it's super hard to do this stuff for yourself, even if you're an expert at it. So if you're not if you're not an expert at it, it's really hard to do this for yourself. And I think people sometimes get into this mindset of like, I should be able to do this for myself. When the reality is, is even the people that are experts like you and I, we can't even do it for ourselves. We're we have to go to someone like each other to help us. And I think that's a really important point to make. It is. A, it's, it's a totally important point. And I have hired a media coach for my book tour for Sell Yourself Without Selling Your Soul. I couldn't do that myself. And like you and I do that kind of exchange that I media train you and you help me with branding. It's really hard to discover your own genius in what you do. And I, and I think that that's to take a look and, and see what's hard for you and hire people for that and do what's easy for you that works and go with that. But absolutely something like this, no, I could not do it for myself, either sound bites or branding. And so that was really helpful to have our session by, I was going to say session by the sea, but session by the pool, <laughs> delicious food and fabulous things at Kavala Point. So Karen Leland, thank you so much for being our guest today. And I can't wait to actually read your book, which I'm going to be 
getting in the next couple of days. You're going to be getting it when we go to Kavala Point next week. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hop on over to BeAMediaDarling.com for any of the resources that we mentioned in this episode and also for free goodies. You'll also find over there some surprises because I would love to be able to delight you. Thanks so much for listening to the Be A Media Darling podcast with me, Susan Harrow. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. And remember, speak your mind, stand your ground, sing your song. I look forward to meeting you.